Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Sound Stories, an inspirational podcast for creative professionals and storytellers who want to improve their lives at home and at work. I'm Stephanie Cicerelli, your host and co-founder of Voices.com. It's hard to sum up Tylee Ross's amazing experience in a nutshell, but just to give you a taste, Tylee is a Grammy-nominated recording artist, the co-founder of the East Village Opera Company, a Dora Award-winning musical theater actor, a teacher, a vocologist, a coach, a husband, a father, and probably too many other things to name. But in short, Tylee Ross is awesome. And he's busy. So we're so very grateful that he could join us on the show today to discuss working through a common roadblocks that we all face as creatives, identifying and honing your creative strength. Welcome, Tylee. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so to kick things off, in the intro, oh my goodness, like, did I cover all of the various roles that you have? Uh, yeah, I think you, you covered uh, most of it. I do have a pretty uh, diverse way of uh, making a living, and I think I'm, I'm basically just following my interests uh, in, in all directions. I constantly have new projects that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm building, but I have a, a, a great uh, private voice clientele. I also work at a laryngology center working with uh, pathological voices who are uh, being rehabilitated. Everybody there from uh, worship singers to uh, pop singers to music theater performers to opera singers. And then I work for, uh, I, I get contracted in for, uh, for Broadway shows as well. Um, so I, I will go and, and work with uh, performers in a show. And in that case, I'm sort of between the, um, the director who's requiring something, uh, the conductor or musical supervisor who is trying to get something out of a, a singer but is not successfully getting what it is they need. So I come in to sort of translate the uh, the acoustic um, aesthetic that is being pursued by the uh, by the creative team and uh, and translate that into uh, actor singer language so that uh, we can get out what uh, what's required. It's like amazing stuff in vocology. like tell us more. Um, vocology is the science and practice of rehabilitating and habilitating voices. So, um, in the, uh, in the speaking world, the hierarchy is you have a, a laryngologist, uh, an ENT, you have a, a speech language pathologist and a, uh, a theatrical speech coach say at the, at the bottom, um, in the singing world, you have the laryngologist is at the top, uh, and then there's nobody really to, uh, uh, take the place currently of the speech-language pathologist. So the vocologist takes that, uh, takes that role, basically, of how do you take somebody whose voice is in good shape and actually get them to a, a heightened level of, uh, of voice use. So it's, it's a bit broad because sometimes it, can, uh, it has implications for speakers and sometimes for, uh, for singers. But for me, I'm, uh, I'm pretty uniquely a, uh, a singing voice specialist within the vocology field. Well, it sounds like you, you're working with a lot of wonderful creative people and uh, a lot of cross-pollination going on, it would seem. So uh, one topic of interest of mine and, and is yours as well is to help uh, those creative people, uh, voice majors in particular for you or performers, um, along the way in their careers. So when you're speaking to someone who's trying to develop their career, would you say that it's better to focus your efforts in one area, as in be known for you know a particular, I don't know, signature voice or a brand kind of notoriety, or is it better to be diverse? Excellent question. Um, and I think that every singer is their own, and, and I'll extend that to every creative, is their own puzzle. As, as a teacher, you have a roadmap of where you want people to go. Um, but And you may have a really good view of where they are on the map, but 
there's a couple things. One, they might not be where you think they are on that map, and they might not be going where you think they ought to go. So you need to get a really good sense of where where are they for real? Um, are they aware of where they are? And where do they want to go? There's sort of a um, an onboard program that I think performers have, which is just to pursue uh, the kind of success that uh, that is out there and obvious in front of them. You know, a lot of people want to become a Broadway star and they want to go until they win their Tony Award, or they want to record their music and they're going to do that until they get their uh, their, their Grammy Award. Uh, but ultimately, I feel like people need to identify a thing that they do that's uh, that's where they can be a specialist. And I actually have them visualize themselves as two things. One is a gambler, and two is as a farmer. So as a gambler, they're kind of a specialist. They're going to pursue this business of becoming a, uh, a, a performer, and hopefully that they, they're going to succeed, and they're going to get the roles that they want, feel artistically fulfilled, and they're going to make money, and they're going to win awards if that's what it is they want to do. Um, but being that kind of creative, you're not really that much in charge of what you do. Uh, you can be the very best at all of the things that you need to do, and you can be ready, and you're not going to get hired. Uh, maybe you're too tall. Maybe you're too short. Maybe you're too wide. Maybe you're too skinny. Maybe you're too bald or blonde or all of the things that you can be that just somehow don't resonate with what the casting director and the director's idea of what that character was going to be when they started the, uh, the casting process. So that person doesn't get the role. I think it's important to be ready for that. So as a gambler, you need to uh, you need to make sure that you buy your lottery ticket and you you buy it every week um, that you ante up. And so as a as a performer, that means that uh, you're castable, and that means being aware of what your casting type is. So if you're a you know the American hero, you got to be going to the gym and you got to be taking care of your hair. I could grow my hair out all scraggly and put on 50 pounds, and I could be the crazy next door neighbor. Um, there's things that I could do for myself that would that would make me more identifiably, iconically a character type that would not challenge a casting team when they're looking for uh, to fill to fill a role. Uh, so knowing what your character type is and actually nailing that is important. So being ready that's part of of being a good good gambler. Um, making sure that your auditions, uh, your audition pieces, your monologue, and your audition book. You know, every music theater performer has to have. A uh, dozen or twenty songs in the book that they're ready to perform uh, at any moment. So being sure that all of your knives in your drawer are really sharp in, in that regard. Making sure that you've got a beautiful headshot, that your resume looks good, that you've got a good agent, you've got a good manager, um, that you know how to take an interview, that you audition well, uh, that you know that if you get a part, you're going to be able to do everything with it that you feel like you're going to be able to do. So you already know that you are as good as you can possibly be. And then you sit there waiting. Um, there isn't much you can do beyond that. Uh, you know, there's lots of talk about networking and all the rest, but my feeling is is you turn yourself into an excellent performer, and then it can be very depressing for a performer because then you sit and wait for your phone to ring. So that's when I say, okay, you're also a farmer. You've taken care of your gambler uh, side. You've got your lottery ticket. You're ready to go. Now you're just waiting for your number to come up. But that's depressing, and I find that for a lot of performers, and I've got a lot of friends who uh, had everything necessary to become big stars and be extremely successful, and then, for one reason or another, their number just didn't come up. Um, so my advice is to also think like a farmer. And you take a look at your, your metaphorical artistic field, and you ask yourself, what do I want to become as an artist? What will be my artistic legacy? Um, 
if my lottery numbers did come up and I was hired to do the greatest show, like my, my perfect show, what would that be? What would I like to create? Or maybe your question would be, uh, you know, your end goal question is, what would be my artistic eulogy? What will people talk about when I've left this earth? What, what will I have liked to create? So what can I plant in this field? And that is a daunting thought for a lot of artists because um, we thrive on being given a script and being given some choreography and a costume and a little piece of tape on the stage that we have to stand on. And you sing that song there and you look in this direction and you have, uh, you know, you're told what to do. And, and in that you find creative freedom somehow. Uh, but if you then take all of those constraints off and you just say, okay, here's your field, it's your life, and you can create anything you want there, what are you going to plant in your artistic field? And then once they actually get to the point of thinking what it is they might like to do, be it um, you know, for a performer, it might be that they want to write a one-person show or they, want to, uh, they also are a songwriter and they want to write some songs. And it's going to be a lot of hard work. And they have to go out into that field every day. They have to plant those seeds. They have to tend to those seeds. They have to weed. They have to water. They have to fertilize. They have to do all those things. They have to be patient and continue to go out every day, even if they don't see things uh, poking through the ground yet. They need to continue to plant. They need to continue to harvest and water and tend to that field. And then maybe what they might find is that what they planted is going to – something else is going to grow. And then they might decide to go, hmm. I'm going to follow that because it turns out in my artistic field, my vision actually uh, creates this. So I came out here to become a uh, a uh, comedian, but it turns out I'm a I'm a serious monologist. It, it turns out I'm not funny. I'm profound. And uh, and then you you must allow for a certain amount of of flow, um, discipline, and play in that field where you you encourage whatever is underneath the surface to uh, to come out. And then having grown something. This is another difficult part, is you have to harvest it. You actually must take it to fruition. You have to, uh, and that might involve getting some other people on board, getting a producer, getting a director, getting a, uh, uh, some various coaches um, to help out with your, uh, with your work. And then finally, the last part is to take it to market, which is um, difficult for a lot of artists because I think uh, a lot of the reason that a lot of creatives um, become the gambler side of, uh, of the art is because they want to be wanted. You know, we want as artists or audiences to enjoy what it is we do. And in order to get there, we need for creative teams and directors to, uh, to like what it is we do. So, uh, and each time I go out in the field, something different grows out there, uh, which is exciting and, and, and fun. Um, but I do find that there is a cross fertilization between these, between being a gambler and being a, uh, a farmer, if you will. I'm really extending this metaphor. Uh, but I find them apt, uh, is that uh, as a, a gambler, you're trying to appeal to the, the director, ultimately, and the, and the producer and the casting person, the people who are going to get you in the door and put you on the stage. Um, but they don't really like auditioning people. Most uh, casting people, most directors hate having to sit through auditions. They would rather just have people that they already knew. And where do they know people from? Well, because they go to the market and they, they go to shows and they see people doing their one-person shows. They see people doing comedy. They see people posting their videos online. They see people actively taking their art and putting it out. And the likelihood of your lottery number coming up as a winner increases exponentially if you are also developing your creative self and marketing that creative self. Um, in such a way that uh, directors are going to see what it is you're doing, you're finding your own voice and you're 
figuring out what it is you want to do in this world, which people are going to want to use. You should just do something, even if it's bad. You don't need to worry about it if it's bad, because even if it's bad, people are going to be astonished that you did something, because most people are waiting around to be hired. So if you actually go and create something and put it up for people to enjoy and say, I did this, people are going to celebrate it. And then in the process, it'll become better and better. <laughs> I love all this. It's basically you need to be prepared in order for that opportunity when it comes up to actually uh, come to fruition. So uh, I know we've talked a little bit about this before on the show, just about, you know, you, you do like preparedness when combined with the opportunity will result in something wonderful. Um, now, you did mention something else in here, and it's the idea of artistic freedom. And to some people, this can be really scary. Um, when you're working with your students, um, how do these students perceive the idea of artistic freedom? Is it scary to them? And then how do you help them to overcome that? It, it's, uh, that's a, a tricky one. Um, artistic freedom is uh, an interesting conundrum. I think it's really important for people to, to take artistic freedom. But uh, to each person in the measure that they are temperamentally set up for it. There are some people who are rebellious and really want to, to cast off the... Uh, the chains that bind them artistically. And there are some people who really want to conform and will find beauty and uh, freedom and uh, uh, a sense of being self-actualized by conforming um, musically. And I, I think that's both paths and all, uh, you know, it's not even binary. It's, it's We find ourselves probably somewhere between being really rebellious and being conform, uh, conformists. Um, and you can, you know, I think you can split that arguably between being an artist and being an entertainer. You know, I think an entertainer more is, you know, trying to do what it is the audience wants. And I know a lot of artists who uh, will gauge their own success by, did that go over well with the audience? Did the audience like it? Did I sell a lot of tickets? For me, I like quite a bit of artistic freedom. Um, I, when I was younger, I was very happy to sit quietly in a, uh, in, in a, uh, rehearsal hall with uh, all the creatives and uh, act when I was pointed at and told to go. Um, now I'm a bit of a, a curmudgeon. I, I have too many opinions. I've done far too many creative projects to sit uh, happily silently, although I will sit silently because I know that's the gig of the uh, of the uh, performer when you're hired to be in someone else's piece. Some, it, and it can be relaxing too, just to go, you know what? You do what you want, and I'm just going to observe how you create. And I, I, I do find myself uh, – I, I do uh, some workshops, uh, and workshops are development workshops uh, for and do plays. So these aren't workshops that you take for your self-development, although I do take them for my self-development. I'm actually a resource actor and singer for uh, new shows that are being developed for Broadway. And these are uh, a lot of fun. They're kind of high pressure because what happens is you have a week or two weeks as much as a month a rehearsal for a, a new show um, that has never been performed before, but you've got the creative team and you've got the producers and you've got the uh, the writer and the director and the composer all in the room, and uh, uh, you're actually they're sitting around really you're in the forge you know they're really trying to see what the show is and every day you come back from lunch and there's rewrites for your script and you have to put in you know 20 new pages and take out 20 pages and then there's a new song or there's a cut to a song and you have to switch these pages around. Um, I find that very stimulating, if only just to overhear what these brilliant people are 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 doing uh, creatively. And I, but 
in that case, I have to really tame myself. Uh, I'm not there as an artist. I'm there as a uh, as a resource for them, and I'm there as uh, for myself. I'm there as a student, just to uh, to um, be mentored. Although they don't realize they're mentoring me, uh, but I just want to see how these great artists work, you know. And I'm lucky, you know, working at the in the the Broadway sphere. I get to work with uh, some of the very best in the business at the height of their careers, and I get to see how they how they work. So that for me is, you know, I, I find myself both, I have to constrain myself and, and be the, the good soldier, if you will. Uh, but then I take that knowledge and I take that inspiration and I take that, uh, uh, the awareness of the creative process there. And I take that and I, I transplant it into my own creative uh, ventures. Um, uh, so for artists, I think it's, uh, it's important to have a little bit of both, you know, to have the, the soldier and the rebel all uh, rolled up in one and know when to be one and know when to be, uh, know when to be the other. Exactly. And, and to be laser focused on an end result and to be fluid, both important. Um, when you're working with other people, you have to be open to what their styles are. And, and also, you know, if it's not your one, one man show, then it's somebody else's production and you got to kind of fall in line with yeah. some of that too. So that's awesome. Now I want to switch gears a little bit here and just, just talk about something I know you're really, really passionate about. And, and so am I as someone who's come from a vocal background and, and really loves their instrument and understanding it. So, um, I want to take the idea of visualization from the figurative to the literal because I know that you've just created a really interesting piece of video content. Can you tell us more about what you've been working on? Yeah. Uh, so I was uh, really fortunate, um, and I continue to be fortunate. I worked at a, a laryngology uh, center, and it's a very science-based uh, center. It's, uh, it's uh, a voice care center, the Langone Voice Care Center at NYU. Um, and the, there are some uh, speech language pathologists there who are uh, really active in research, and the laryngologists there are really active in, in research, um, and they have access to an MRI after hours. And uh, MRI is the uh, magnetic resonance imaging. It's kind of like a, uh, for those people who don't know it, it's kind of like an X-ray, but it uses um, magnetic resonance to see through images, but instead of seeing the whole three-dimensional image, what you get is a thin slice, uh, just a, a thin plane of, a, of an image. And in fact, once the, the MRI is complete, you can actually scroll through the three-dimensional image plane by plane. Um, so what it meant for me was uh, the, uh, the technician from Siemens um, was wanting to learn how to and better calibrate the machines uh, they're, they're really squeezing a, uh, a new function out of the existing MRI machine of getting uh, moving images out of an MRI. Because uh, up until now, basically what you've had is static imagery that you can get out of these machines. And uh, so I was used as a guinea pig, and my, uh, my agreement was I get the video from this, uh, this session, then I'll go and lie in this... Uh, uh, this MRI machine for a couple hours in the middle of the night um, and do what it is they want. If I can, uh, I just wanted to see what is going on in my vocal track. Uh, you know, I spend all my time visualizing what's going on inside and helping my students to visualize what it is that's happening. And I've had as a, as a teacher more than as a singer, but it certainly helps me as a singer. But as a, as a teacher, I have to understand physiologically, biomechanically, what is actually moving in the body of the singer. And it's all 
really mostly I should say invisible. It's all the inner spaces of the of the uh, the vocal tract, um, and the vocal tract basically starting at the uh, at the vocal folds in the uh, uh, in the throat and moving up through the uh, the pharynx, the back of the throat, and then coming out the mouth and the uh, and the sinus when the velum is open to be a little technical. Um, so I have to be very sensitive to what's happening in there, but we don't really have evidence about uh, about what is actually moving and how they are moving. So I wanted to get in this MRI machine and uh, uh, and audition, if you will, um, what it is I think I'm doing and uh, compare that to what it is that's actually happening. So I was able to get in there and I spent a couple hours singing in the MRI and I was given that footage and I've put together a, a four, four and a half minute video of the uh, of the footage showing myself in profile in video and then I cut into the... Uh, uh, the inner world of the uh, of the vocal tract shown through the MRI. So I was, uh, I, I call it uh, singing in the MRI is the name of the, uh, the video, and I sing um, the end of Nestum Dorma uh, Puccini's uh, aria, and I sing that in four different vocal styles. And you can really see the different shapes that uh, the vocal tract needs to uh, uh, contour and posture itself into in order to. Actually, do these different uh, do these different vocal strategies or vocal styles, um, and I, I certainly there's there's no hard science in it so much because there's you know there's no blind study there was no other singers in the room uh, we just had one shot really with me doing each one of these things, um, but what we can definitely say is that things are moving and moving differently from style to style, uh, and my next I'm, I'm going to continue with this uh, study I, I'm going to get. Uh, a range of singers into the MRI to sing, and I want to do some comparative analysis of uh, uh, what is moving, and can we uh, start to objectively say what is moving when we're uh, uh, in the vocal tract, when we're uh, when we're making these uh, these changes in vocal styles and vocalisms, if you will, different vocal aesthetics. How are we doing that? Uh, how is the tongue positioned differently? How is the velum? How is the jaw? How is how are all of the movable parts of the vocal tract? And you can say that virtually uh, the entire vocal tract is movable. Um, it's an extraordinary piece of uh, <laughs> an extraordinary instrument. We are an extraordinary instrument, uh, each one of us. I agree. Yeah, I watched the video. It was amazing. Um, and I loved how you could, you could actually see the tongue and how it moved or the soft palate and how it would, um, you know, be elongated and raised. Um, but there's just so many amazing, I, like, I've oh, my goodness, being able to see inside uh, the human body is amazing. But to know how your instrument works, um, to better understand how how those words and the colorings come through and, and just the various styles you went through. Uh, people will definitely need to watch this. Just check our show notes. But obviously, Singing in the MRI is the name of the video by Tylee Ross. Um, but yeah, pharyngeal voice. I'm sure that that was in there somewhere too. Can I add one other thing that's been very inspiring and uh, uh, transformative to me is is becoming a father. I have a, a beautiful uh, four-year-old son who is just the absolute light of every moment of my life. Um, and I've found, you know, when I was a younger person, boy, did I ever want to become famous. And that was my, that was my driving force. I just would have done anything and been in any one show and done whatever was required. And I didn't care what it was. I just, I really wanted to succeed and to have people say that I was great. That was my, my motivation. And then I wanted to, uh, satisfy myself having had, you know, a certain amount of success and, uh, uh, uh and been other people's walking, talking, uh, actor on their stage. I, I wanted to create my, my own work and 
and plumb the depths of my own my own soul and figure out what was in there artistically and uh, uh, and of course somewhere along the way the reality hits the road you whatever it is you're plumbing for has to actually find its feet in the world and uh, it turns into uh, whatever it's going to turn into um, but I find as I as I'm creative now uh, I, I find myself asking the question how is this how is this relevant for the world that's being built for my uh, for my kids. And I feel like as as a young person, we just we just want to succeed. Um, as a as a uh, maybe as a young person, but as a developing artist and creative, um, we become really uh, hypnotized by and and mostly out of necessity. But how do I monetize this? How do I how can I get somebody to buy this? Um, how can I get somebody to endorse this? Uh, how do I get an advertiser to to to, to get on board of this? Um, and we become really obsessed with that. And I, I think it's an important time um, right now in, in the world and for me personally uh, to do work that I think is uh, relevant for, uh, for art's sake, for humanity's sake. What can we say? What is the message? You know, these things, you know, maybe 100 years ago, the likelihood that an artist would actually make money or even a writer would make money was just so out of beyond the pale that that work was made um for its own sake because people had something they needed to say and we when we find ourselves in the creative arts serving the needs of uh, uh commercial needs um and of course that is a, a viable and and important concern but if that if we are only chasing the end result of uh making money and uh entertaining somebody or getting an advertiser dollar I feel like somehow we lose our we lose our soul and we lose our way, and it's important for us to continue to ask, what are we doing this for? What do I really want to say? Go back to the field and ask yourself, what what would I plant here, and what will what can I plant that will benefit the generation of of my children and their children? Uh, and that's that's been a, a really important force for me uh, and consideration for me as I as I create now in my life. Well, so eloquently said. Where can people go to learn more about you, Tylee, and get connected? Um, I have a website, tyleerossvoice.com. Uh, I'll spell that because it's an unusual name, Tylee, T-Y-L-E-Y-R-O-S-S, voice.com. Uh, and, uh, and then through there, you can go to visit uh, um, my uh, videos up on, uh, on YouTube. Um, I've also got a few uh, albums up on, uh, on iTunes, Spotify, uh, under my name is Tylee Ross. I've got a few uh, singer-songwriter albums. Um, I've got three albums with my group, the East Village Offer Company, and another album with uh, another group that I have called uh, Aria Electronica. So people can hear me uh, there. And uh, uh, and uh, if you're ever in New York City, I, I coach voice here too. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on Sound Stories, Tylee. I can't wait for everyone to hear this episode. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't already done so, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, as well as give us a rating. We love hearing from you and gathering your feedback. Once again, I'm your host, Stephanie Cicerelli, and I hope you can join us for our next Sound Stories podcast.